This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, I'm Matt Chorley, and this is Politics Without the Boring Pits, revisiting our series, The Political Editors, with the people who wrote the first draft of political history over the last half century. In today's episode, it's Roland Watson, political editor of the Times from 2010 to 2013. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Half a century of politics told by the people who wrote the first draft of history for The Times. This is The Political Editors. In this episode, Roland Watson on interviewing Bush in the Oval Office, the birth of the coalition and The Times' official election artist. Roller coaster of extraordinary stories, but a sort of an inexorable route to the downfall of the Tories and the incoming of Labour. For these events, we didn't just turn up with a photographer, but we turned up with an artist as well. He just made a speech. He was in an absolutely filthy mood. I mean, it was the first peacetime coalition for 80 years. Eventually got an interview with Bush uh, in the Oval Office. And at the end of the interview, he said, all right, come over and opened a drawer and started producing baseballs and commemorative postcards. So, Roland Watson, you became political editor in January 2010, succeeding Phil Webster, who'd been there for about 200 years. What was it like taking over as political editor, having worked with him so closely for such a long time? Pretty terrifying, to be honest. I I joined the Times uh, in 1998 as a political correspondent. I was at the time on the Express, and so I, I, uh, where I was political editor, but I joined as a political correspondent. I'd always wanted to work for the Times, really. And I joined this most illustrious team involving Phil and Peter Riddle and Matthew Paris was sketching. So I had worked with Phil 
very closely, both in uh, in Westminster, and then I I went from there to Washington, but was obviously working very closely with him while he was in Westminster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was taking over from from a legend and replacing such a big name like Phil Webster, political editor for such a long time. What did you learn from him? What skills? What skills did you did you take from Phil? Well, some skills that were entirely personal and very difficult to learn. Phil had an uncanny ability to read silences or even even read body language uh, and and know what was behind it he came very excited into our porter cabin in westminster one afternoon notably so shall we say uh, what's up he said oh, 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 oh I've, I've just seen george jones walking down the corridor uh, George Jones was his uh, long-term rival and friend who was the political editor of the Daily Telegraph. Uh, oh, yeah, and so what? Uh, well, I, he, he was walking down the corridor in a funny way. <laughs> <laughs> I know he's got something. And Phil devoted the rest of the afternoon to making it his business to find out what story George Jones had got in his pocket and not only to beat it, to better it, so that the next day's front page of the Telegraph duly splashed with George's story, and the Times splashed with Phil's slightly improved version. <laughs> uh, and that's probably a skill you can't really teach, but that is how to be a good political editor. I suppose taking over in 2010, on the cusp of the end of the, the sort of Labour government, it was almost going full circle, because when you, you joined the lobby in the early 90s, it was the end of the Tory era and the, the sort of the rise of New Labour. Yeah, it was, very much. Um, I mean, there was the five years of the major parliament was a sort of roller coaster of extraordinary stories, but a sort of an inexorable route to the downfall of the Tories and the incoming of Labour. And uh, you're right. I mean, at that stage in January, Labour certainly hadn't given up hope. Yeah. Um, Brown and his team thought that even after 13 years themselves, they still had a good story to sell, which was largely amounted to Gordon Brown saving the world after the financial crash. And we not only saved the world, uh, saved the banks and saved, <laughs> saved, saved the banks. The election campaign that followed was absolutely fascinating. It became a genuine three-horse race. We had the first televised debates, which gave Clegg his moment of oxygen. And uh, really, right to the end, the election was pretty hard to call. And actually, I mean, certainly in the time... So I've been in the lobby for almost 20 years now, and probably the, the, the 2010 elections are one where, during the campaign, nobody knew what was going to happen. There have been other elections where we thought we knew what was going to happen, and then it didn't turn out to be the case. But a genuine, open contest, the ups and downs of the campaign, the novelty of the of the TV debates. And presumably, if you're the political the new political editor of The Times in 2010... Does everybody want to speak to you? Up to a point. <laughs> <laughs> there was a rather fabulous tradition of the editor interviewing every party leader, along with a political editor. And for these events, we didn't just turn up with a photographer, but we turned up with an artist as well. 
so that the interview would be displayed across two pages of the uh, of the Times inside, with this artist's sketch as the main image on the page. A guy called Matthew Cook, who'd also drawn uh, sketches for the Times from uh, from conflict zones, and two of the party leaders were uh, very keen to talk to us. So we got Cameron and Clegg under our belts uh, quite early on in the campaign. Gordon Brown was incredibly reluctant. He really did not want to do this interview. And we entered the last week of the campaign with me still pretty much begging by that stage. And there was always, it couldn't be fitted in. There was a diary complication. It was just too much trouble. But Gordon, he'd really fallen out with the times. We had, partly because we had, during the campaign, endorsed the Tories. Anyway, I did, during that last week, I got a phone call at about half eight in the morning from a number 10 guy saying, all right, uh, you can have the interview. Uh, We've got a a tiny bit of time at this college in Leamington Spa, uh, but you have to be there by 11.30. And it was pretty much mission impossible. (laughs) Um, And it was designed for us to fail and for for them to be able to say, well, we offered. But anyway, James Harding, who was the editor at the time, was game for anything. So we scrambled, made it there somehow. And at that stage... With I'm, the artist? With the artist, Very absolutely good. with the artist. He scrambled as well. Everyone, everyone, everyone played their role. At that stage, I'm not even sure the number 10 guys had told the Prime Minister that this interview was going to take place because they'd assumed we wouldn't make it. He just made a speech. He was in an absolutely filthy mood. It was the last thing he wanted to do. We pulled up some chairs and for about 20, 25 minutes, he just sort of thundered at us. Um, We asked a few questions, none of which got answered. And and he just delivered a very Brownian script. I want to talk about serious issues. I'm not going to talk about personalities or tidbits. I'm only here to talk about serious issues. And he delivered his script again and again. So not everyone wanted to speak to us. I was just sort of reflecting back because it was clearly a time where Labour really did want to speak to the Times and, and Phil cultivated those relationships. So both the Blairites and the Brownites sort of had him on speed dial. When you were a junior political correspondent and everyone went to Phil, how did you sort of navigate your way through that? Well, first of all, it was a wonder to see how Phil kept up contacts with both sides of an increasingly dysfunctional party, but also with the Tories. It was masterful. I mean, in a sense, that was one of my favourite jobs, being political correspondent, because you had enormous freedom to roam around and make your own fun, as it were. It was finding stuff that no one else had. It had been very useful starting in the lobby, working for local papers, a string of local papers. So... When I joined, I had a I, I had a lot of sort of backbench or junior minister type contacts who I knew quite well. That was helpful. Yeah, I, similarly, you you end up with these sort of little pockets of MPs who no one else has ever bothered speaking to. I seem to be the only journalist who knew Jeffrey Cox was when he he, he appeared at the news. So let's go back to 2010. Then Labour on the way out, the Tories on the way in. How did you find David Cameron? Enormously confident, personable. 
I think overall slightly more diligent than he's often given credit for but with a slight seat-of-the-pants quality to the way he went about his business. There was something in the sort of the essay crisis, Prime Minister. My brilliant colleague at the time and successor, Francis Elliott, who rather brilliantly nailed that in a single word when, in his biography of Cameron, he dubbed him the king of chillaxing, which was very apposite and stuck and and, uh, rung, rung true. You mentioned him earlier, but there was also there was another person in this marriage, in Nick Clegg. And how do you think you, the Times, the lobby generally, coped in those early days of having a coalition? With some difficulty. It was, to start with, it was quite hard to understand how this was going to work. Uh, or if to, it was going to work. Liter- or if. Yeah, how long it would survive. Um, I mean, it was the first peacetime coalition for 80 years. No one involved in either constructing it or covering it knew the procedure, uh, if there was a procedure. And that first joint appearance they made at the end of what had been a very gruelling campaign and then five days of coalition talks when they appeared uh, looking like spring daisies in the in the Downing Street garden. Prime Minister, do you now regret when once asked what your favourite joke was, you replied, Nick Clegg, and Deputy Prime Minister, what do you think of that? <laughs> I, we're all going to have. I, I'm afraid I did oh, once. Right. I'm... I'm uh... <laughs> A lot of the questions then were, well, where, where are the Lib Dems going to sit? I mean, they only ever sat in one place in the, <laughs> in the Commons. How are the, how are the ministries going to work? Who is going to be in charge of whipping the Lib Dems or whipping the Tories? What would the sanctions be? And, uh, you know, to their, to their credit, they made it work for five full years. Uh, but at the start, it was, um, it was exciting and interesting to cover because every department, you know, had a, well, most departments had a Lib Dem in them. There were these strange marriages of convenience all around Whitehall. Uh, a lot of territory MPs absolutely hated it. But Cameron and Clegg both quite enjoyed their jobs and for better or for worse, saw it through to the end. And at that point, one of the really striking things in politics that we haven't really had that before or since was that all three parties were interesting. And so you sort of had this constant, it felt like you were sort of constantly you know, spinning plates of who who was you going to pick the phone up to today, rather than, you know, for large periods, you know, what was the point of speaking to the Tories during the new Labour years or whatever? Did you did you find that, that you had sort of Clegg, Cameron and Miliband? I mean, Miliband, one of his biggest problems was that he was the third most interesting man in politics. Yeah, yeah, he was. And that was a, that was a real problem for Labour in terms of projection and how they how they sold Miliband. And given the commitment and then the legislation to a five-year parliament, that was a long time when the lobby and the public really didn't need to pay much attention to, to Ed Miliband uh, because they had this sort of living drama, living experiment going on in front of them. I mean, the one thing there was in the lobby was a, a, a sort of emergency making of Liberal Democrat contacts, uh, which was a very minority. Some of us always had those. (laughs) Indeed, (laughs) I bow to you. But that had been a minority pursuit uh, up to that point. It was normally the most junior person in any team would would make it their business because no one else had, and suddenly... Or the peers. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. Or both. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) 
You're listening to Roland Watson, part five of our series, The Political Editors. Up next, what happened when he went to the White House to interview George W. Bush? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. When you look at your time in the lobby, there's always the, the, the danger of thinking that the thing that's happening right now is the biggest thing that's ever happened. In terms of the big events that you covered, both as Pothead, but before that as well, obviously the, 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 former, the formation of the, the coalition, the financial crash, 9-11. Which are the ones that you think really did change politics and the country? 9-11, on a more personal level, happened in the first week that I uh, had turned up in the Times' Washington Bureau. So I, I had sort of four years in Washington of really being completely dominated by 9-11 and covering Bush. And I think the, the experience of reporting in Washington certainly coloured how I later saw Westminster. Westminster feels like a goldfish bowl. It's one of the most attractive things about it, uh, that everything moves is important and you can sort of newsify any coffin spit. Washington is very different to that, not just because there's uh, much more deference towards the office holder who's a head of state as well as a head of government. Uh, the White House press corps still stand up when the president enters the room. But they have a much different view of the world. It's like being on Mount Olympus in Washington. You turn up to the State Department and uh, there are incredibly smart uh, American officials who understand uh, the socioeconomics of the tiniest African state and the ethnic uh, differences in across Southeast Asia. And they are fantastically literate. And from there, London does seem quite parochial. Uh, a bit like a parish council. And so then coming back to Westminster later, it was odd going back into the goldfish bowl <laughs> and sort of getting back into the swing of things. And how was it being a British journalist reporting for a British paper from Washington in terms of the, the Blair-Bush relationship and the some of the characterization in the UK being that, you know, Blair was the poodle and just following Bush and so on? Mr. Prime Minister, welcome. Thank you very much, Mr. President. And, well, I was delighted to come here and 
I've been really enthusiastic about our meetings so far. They've been absolutely excellent, very productive. Was that how Blair and Britain was being seen in America? Not at all. Blair was lionised and regarded as passionate, as fluent. I mean, George Bush... I have to say, I loved reporting Bush. He was a walking story. You know, he couldn't he couldn't walk into a room without committing news, and not always intentionally. No, he was very misunderestimated, as he might <laughs> have put it, so, yeah. uh, by the Brits. Uh, I always fought a losing battle, a bit with the foreign desk, um, uh, about actually how smart a communicator I thought Bush was. I thought he was always going to win that second election, hands down. The impression of Blair was completely different the way we treated him as sort of rolling over for Bush and and the respect with which he was treated over there. But being a British reporter there, was, it, it, it's, it's a very, very different role because, as you say, uh, you know, you hope as the Times political editor, everyone wants to speak to you. Very, very hard to get an audience there. And in fact, your best hope is actually trying to get an audience with the president himself, occasionally once a year or once every two years, British newspaper will be granted an audience. And I sweated blood leaning on on the one person in the National Security Council who might be able to help. Eventually got an interview. With Bush? With Bush, uh, in the Oval Office, with Jerry Baker, who at the, at the time was our Washington commentator. And so we had a, we had a reasonable chat for quite a long time. And at the end of the interview, he said, all oh, right, come over, come over here. So he took us from the sort of uh, the twin armchairs by the fireplace, if you like, to his desk and opened a drawer and started producing baseballs and commemorative postcards. And he said, uh, what are your kids' names? So I said, so I said I've got two daughters and their names. He signed notes to them. Uh, he signed baseballs for them. And I did wonder if this was a... This was the best use of, uh, of the president's time. Then he sent a Jerry and he said, right, and what about your kids? Now, Jerry's got five daughters. Um, so that really did hold us up quite a bit at the end. Um, did he have an endless supply of baseballs in that drawer? Apparently endless. Enough for seven at one shot anyway. And so then you come back, you're Paul Ed, Gordon Brown. I mean, I get the sense that Gordon Brown might have thrown a baseball at you rather than sign one. <laughs> when you go in to interview the Prime Minister in Downing Street, do you get the same treatment? Uh, no, absolutely not. I mean, it, it's a bit more knowing, you know, you, you're not meeting them for the first time and the, the terrain is better understood. They understand the game much better. You understand the game. You know where you're trying to take them. They're extremely aware uh, where they're trying not to go. So no, it's a bit different. Of course, one of the big political stories, more after you, you left as, as Pollard, was, was the story of Europe and David Cameron Macy kept a lid on that during uh, most of the coalition times. But it was always bubbling around in the background. It was. And it, um, I mean, there was an, the extraordinary Brussels summit towards the end of 2011, I think it was, when the 26, 27 leaders sat through the night. They, it was a very arcane discussion. It was about whether new fiscal rules for the Eurozone should be written into EU treaties, the sort of sort of stuff that summits are made of. It wasn't built up as a big summit, but they, they didn't break up. They went on and on. And as dawn broke, it emerged that Cameron had vetoed uh, the outcome. I said before coming to Brussels that if I couldn't get adequate safeguards for Britain in a new European treaty 
then I wouldn't agree to it. And UKIP was on the rise at home. He clearly had a problem with a wing of his party. And he had just completely recast our relationship with Europe in the sense that we were now an isolated single state, even the non-Eurozone countries uh, we were against. And that was, that was incredibly dramatic at the time. And I remember later that morning, Cameron's spokesman, Steve Field, briefing us all in one of the side rooms. The, the expectation, given Cameron's words and his actions, was that this was putting us on, uh, putting him personally on a collision course with the EU and that he would, uh, he would indeed begin to seek a way out. And that was the assumption in the lobby. And Steve came in and said, well, well no, don't misunderstand it. This man is passionately pro-European. He doesn't want to leave the EU. And so you had a, a, a leader who'd won the Tory crown by playing footsie with the Eurosceptics, had just isolated Britain and Europe... There was talk of a referendum already or a rearrangement uh, uh, with Europe in the background. And yet he appeared to be someone who personally was committed to keeping Britain in. And you thought at that stage, well, how on earth is that going to work? Doesn't seem to stack up in domestic political terms. And indeed, from there, we know what happened. And I suppose it was... It was one of those things that so much of what David Cameron said and did in those years leading up to the referendum were about how terrible the EU was. They won't let us do that. They won't let us do this. I've had to use a veto. I've had to call for a break. And so his argument then ended up being, this is a terrible organisation and that's why we should stay in it. Yeah, that's, and, and that's what you got a first hint of in that, in, yeah. with the use of that veto and its aftermath. And it was very hard to stack up as an argument. Anyone else other than Cameron may have shied away from it, but he had extraordinary confidence, extraordinary personal belief, and thought that he could, uh, uh, all he had to do was put it to the country and the power of his, his personality would, would win the day. And just looking ahead then, based on your experience of, of 2010, although the polls would suggest a stonking Labour victory the next election, I wonder whether you think, which actually was the expectation in 2010, that the Conservatives were going to get a majority because nobody could imagine a hung parliament happening. Is it underpriced? You know, should, should your successors in the lobby be dusting off their Lib Dem contacts book again uh, for, for an election campaign where the outcome is, is unknown and a coalition could be on the cards? Well, looking at it from a distance, the numbers this time are very different. And yes, it's 13 years, which is analogous, and a newish prime minister who's been unelected by the people. That was also the case with And Gordon former Brown. chancellor. And a former chancellor. <laughs> this time the Tories have got a long way to come back, much further than Labour did. Um, and I also think that the Lib Dems are not going to be jumping into bed with anyone in the same way that they did last time very soon. I think it's going to take probably another generation before they do that again. You used the phrase looking from a distance. You, you went from being political editor to foreign editor in 2013, now comment editor, which means I have to pitch my column to you every week. <laughs> Do you prefer your politics from a distance these days rather than being at the centre of it all? I do miss I do miss the big days. There's nothing quite like it. It's incredibly exciting being in Westminster, and I, I never felt anything but privilege being able to go and work there. In a funny way, I also miss the quiet days when you could just 
hang around in the lobby, see who turned up, <laughs> see what they had Without to say. Without the news desk, be able to see what you're doing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I am in awe of Steve Swinford and his team, how they manage the demands of the digital age uh, and social media and stay across everything and on top of everything. It's really quite a skill. Well, Roland Watson, it's been lovely to speak to you. And I shall be speaking to you again later when I have to pitch my column to you. Uh, Roland Watson, thanks very much for joining us on The Political Letters. Pleasure. That was Roland Watson, Political of the Times, from 2010 to 2013. In the sixth episode, his replacement, Francis Elliott, on the demise of the coalition, Theresa May's exhausting Brexit years the emergence of something called coronavirus. That episode and the entire series is available now wherever you're listening to Politics Without the Boring Bits. But for now, for me, Matt Jolly, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.